Having fun prohibited. Hello and welcome to the China podcast. It's 2022 and a very happy new year to you all. We're back after an extended break, which gave us a chance to plan ahead. And boy, do we have something exciting lined up between now and the turn of spring. We have loads, uh, loads to catch up on this week. Uh, let's first start with the new year. Owen, how did your celebrations go down? My celebrations went down with waiting about five hours to get home because it was busy and lots of people moving and whatnot. And I got home. And I had ribs, I had salted ribs, I had sweet and sour ribs, and I would have ate raw ribs, because I love ribs. And then, nothing. I just put my feet up and waited with my wife watching the telly. Yeah, that's how you want it sometimes, eh? Yeah, it was perfect. Yeah. Uh, but I think it was yeah, fairly low-key all across China, to be honest with you. Um, you know, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I, did, I heard no mention of any firework displays in China. Uh, I myself, I didn't even bother. I went went to bed. Well, I, I went to bed around eleven fifteen. There were a couple of fireworks, but there's just a couple of guys with with a box on the roof. Yeah, you know, but it wasn't no a, big like public displays. No, there was no big public displays. You know. Yeah. Um. But yeah, you know, I've always found New Year's massively underwhelming. You know, it's it's like. Any other normal weekend night that's a bit busy, you know, just with that midnight countdown. Well, when I was a kid, I used to love it because my mother, she would, um, she, she'd wake up the neighbours at the stroke of midnight and every, she'd walk around with a bottle of whiskey and everybody would get out and all together singing old Lang Syne. And because she was a teacher, she had one of those big old school bells. Yeah. She used to walk yeah. around waking people up with. Um, and that was cool, but that, that kind of stopped, you know. Um, but we're lucky, in a sense, here that we have the, the Chinese New Year, because that's a proper celebration. Yeah, it is. Uh, one week long, in fact. Yeah, and 2022 is the Year of the Tiger. And the Chinese New Year's festivities, it's something that we plan on covering. Uh, they happen during the Spring Festival holiday, so you expect plenty of spiced sausages. So a sausage fest, in other words. <laughs> in other words. <laughs> I actually think uh, now would be a good opportunity to talk about sausages for a minute or two. Because seriously speaking, it is the season for cured meats in southwest China, mainly in Sichuan and Chongqing. Yeah, and it's customary here to make sausages um, around this time and leave them hanging out to dry on the balcony of your home. Uh, I mean, if you're, you're out walking in this part of the world and you just happen to look up you're likely to see them on display from probably every other apartment window yeah and it's not just in the homes it's it's the vegetable markets have sausages outside them Mm -hmm. the supermarkets smaller convenience stores um you can buy them pre-made um the spicy sausage is a traditional cured meat which it was developed um so it could be stored for long periods of time uh, the flavor, it depends on where you are. Because Chongqing people like their food hot, naturally, their sausages are hotter and spicier than the rest of China. Yeah, and you've made them before, right? Uh, is it something you do every year? Um, and what does the process look like when you're making them? What right. does that involve? Right, so you obviously you need a bit of kit. You need a bit of machinery. Yeah. So 
what you do is you basically go to the market, go to the big meat market, mm-hmm. and you buy the, the side of a pig. You just yeah. buy as much meat as you want mm-hmm. and make sure that there's enough fat in it because otherwise it won't it won't work. Yeah. And then you just you literally bring it to a guy with a massive mincing machine mm-hmm. and he minces it up um, and then you mix it with whatever spices and chilies and gar- garlic, uh, wine, salt, sugar, Anything you you find to change the taste, to enrich the taste and make them last longer. Um, and then you make them the same as any other sausage. You just stuff the meat into the casing and, you know, shape it into cylinders, tie it at the end and twist it in the middle. All right. So it doesn't sound too strenuous. Uh, and what about the, the drying period? Well, there's a couple of ways. You can leave them out to air dry. Which you just hang up. Yeah. That's, that's what you see. All right. Or there's another sort of thing that you would... You, you'll see they use fire and smoke. Okay. So that would probably be the most traditional way of doing it, I imagine. Yeah. And you're not going to do it in the countryside... In the, in the cities, I should say. No, no, it's, no. It's going to happen in it's the It's going to happen in the countryside. You see them making these little tiny stacks... Um, like these little smokehouses, these yeah. disposable yeah. smokehouses that they they, they mm. build, they smoke the sausages, and then and 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 that's it. Yeah, um, and yeah, they can be cooked a number of ways. You can fry them, you can boil them, steam them. It's all good. It's all good. It really is. It really is. Um, and the homemade ones, they're better than the the industrially kind of manufactured varieties, the pre-packed ones, right? Yeah, well, the pre-packed ones, they're, you, they use additives. And the, the smoking phase, that's sped up using chemical compounds that they have an effect on the quality. It's not always positive. It's just sometimes detrimental. And it's, they're not really authentic. Right, so yeah, it, it sounds like a serious undertaking. Um making these sausages oh it's due yeah. diligence it's a work of art if you get a good one so yeah um spice sausages of course they're just one of many delicacies that are being prepared right now for chinese new year which is upon us almost um but yeah let's stick with the contemporary for a while because we, we it's been two weeks since our last podcast and we thought about we we yeah. must catch up must catch up a lot has happened in china yeah. a lot has happened in general um own, did you watch Don't Look Up? Because a lot of people are talking about this film. Uh, this Don't Look Up movie, I've been waiting for it for a while. The guy who made Don't Look Up is Adam McKay, and he was the guy who's responsible for The Big Short. Great film. So kind of serious matters done in a kind of an absurd way. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. But I think people are forgetting that he also made Anchorman. Like, that was his first movie was Anchorman. Oh, was it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then his second movie was Talladega Nights, the story of, like... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Step Brothers. He did Step Brothers as Mm. well. So Mm. lots of Will Ferrell stuff. So he's taken on very serious issues more recently. Well, he's taken on more more serious issues more recently. But doing them in a funny way. Yeah, uh, doing them in a funny way. Because, like, that's that's the way he, he... kind of looks at the world he's mm. he's uh he founded the funny or die website with will ferrell okay and if you've ever seen the little short movie of will ferrell 
getting scared of the little two-year-old girl who's shouting for the money because <laughs> <laughs> that's the is a sketch called the landlord and was she looking was she looking for a red envelope no she was looking for a rent <laughs> oh <laughs> and there's a little two-year-old girl going where's my money bitch <laughs> It's hilarious. That that is actually Pearl McKay. That's Adam McKay's daughter. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All so right. he he is a he is a funny guy, and he's like he wrote Anchorman. Like he's mm. he's hilarious. Yeah, classic, absolutely yeah. classic. Um, but yeah, don't look up. It's available now on Netflix, or I guess to download if you feel like a pirate. <laughs> yes, it um, is. <laughs> I'm told. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Chinese people, they will recognize its lead actor, Leonardo DiCaprio, or Jack from Titanic, as he is affectionately known as here in China. Um, And he stars alongside Jennifer Lawrence, another terrific actor. Uh, And they both play scientists who have discovered a comet on a collision course with Earth. They urgently inform their superiors, uh, as well as NASA, um, of the, the emergency at hand, and... They're soon given a reception with the President of the United States, uh, who is played by the legendary Meryl Streep. But it's at this point in the film that everything takes a turn towards the absurd, as Owen, as Owen said about the, 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 the director. Um, this is what he's into now. Um, inaction and denial ensue. With six months to act, the President would rather focus on how tackling the impending doom might affect her ratings uh, and the upcoming and her upcoming performance in um, the presidential midterms. Likewise, the media shun the gravity of the situation. They don't really care. Um, so the film yeah, is a, it's a farcical take on the times that we live in. Uh, it's an analogy, if you want, uh, on how we're staring down the barrel of the climate change shotgun. You know, but the thing about it is, the scary thing about it is, rather, is is that it's not even satire. This is this is true. These this this stuff is actually happening right now. Yeah, I I did read a little bit of critical response, and I knew it was gonna. I knew that people weren't they weren't weren't, weren't going to warm to it. No, they weren't like because it's hard, and he does put hard stuff in into his into his movies. It's the hard truth. But what the, the only people I was listening to interested in reading what they had to say about it were um climate scientists mm, i yeah. wanted to know what they said and they said this is exactly how it is yeah yeah they're, they're like this is exactly how it is yeah, you, it's you, the ignorance and the denial yeah and know? the money and the money and the money of course yeah yeah because the economy must go on the economy must go on what about the economy yeah exactly what about me um, <laughs> yeah and, and of course it has received lukewarm reviews by critics and that doesn't surprise me either i mean yeah, yeah did they they probably don't want people yeah. watching it no no uh and speaking of satire on you did some stand-up comedy recently didn't you i did do you care to share your experience oh, my experience i watched you i, you, I thought yeah. it was good it was all right i started forgetting my lines and all sorts of things but i was nervous you know and i was trying to remember all the lines and all the punchlines and there weren't many punchlines in what i was trying to do mm. there were like maybe four or five and I remembered two, and I messed them up. But I kind—I think I kind of got them back. I, like they weren't exactly as I wanted to say. I was forgetting what I wanted to say. Well, I think you got away with it. I mean, yeah, that's what I, that's what I feel like. I feel I, like I got away. I, with I, it. I didn't notice it. Yeah. And those guys who were with us, our little entourage, they didn't yeah. notice either. 
they you didn't know? they didn't notice either. But you, you got laughs. Yeah, yeah, you got yeah. laughs, and everybody that was there tried their best and did their yeah. best, and and even even before when we were sitting in the green room, myself and a couple of the other comics, mm. I didn't want to tell my punchlines because I, I I thought I'd mess them up, and I did. So mm. it was kind of like you know it's something to work on, and I can improve it. You know, yeah. Well, it's anything like that is a learning curve, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, it's good crack. I mean, it, it was your stand-up debut, after all. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. You and know, it's to a Chinese audience as well. Like most of those people were Chinese. They actually were. They actually were. Yeah. Um, and if you're an expat living in Ch- in Chongqing, or if you're Chinese and you haven't yet frequented one of these these stand-up gigs, go. It's a great scene. I was really impressed with it, and. You know, if if you do go, those people they'd be glad of your support. Um, there's also another one, uh, another comedy club in Chengdu, uh, and probably others too that I'm unaware of. Um, but yeah, it's you know it's always good to to have a laugh in these trying times. Yolo, you only live once. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> yeah, great music being played as well. Um, there was a little bit of a what was the what was the group that I asked you to remember. The sound, the sound. Yes, yeah. you guessed we because we were listening to this song um, yeah. before the the gig started, um, and not just this song. Lots of music was playing. It was yeah. really good. Like it's it not was a quality tune. Yeah, quality tunes. Yeah, uh, and we didn't recognize this band. I guessed um, Suicide. Yeah, Depeche you, Mode. You guessed Depeche Mode, yeah. uh, and we were close. Yeah, because uh, the sound they did belong to that kind of British post-punk era um you know they they just weren't as well known i suppose um but yeah great that that kind of that kind of music turned turned up in notes you know really uh, did impress me as i said um and yeah there's there's another band for my listening list for for 2022 so yeah so far i've got them and television television have been Television are kind of well known, but I never really got around yeah. to to listening to their stuff. I've been listening to a lot of Motorama. Motorama, that sounds like a. Yeah. That sounds like Motorola. They're pretty cool. They're pretty pretty chilled out. They're, uh, Remember Motorola? The, yeah, I do. The phones <laughs> with the, in the nineties, early nineties, yeah, with the big the aerial that you had to pull out, and it was about it was yeah, twice the size they were of the flip phone. phones, right? No, it, the early flip well, phones, they, I think as well. Yeah, they did them as well. Yeah, yeah. they did them. Ah, sure. Uh, anyway, you're saying tell. What about the Chieftains? That was one hell of a story you told me that night at the gig. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you listen to our last podcast, you'll remember how we discussed Westlife's broadcast to a Chinese audience and how one viewer in China said that it might be good for cultural exchange purposes, you know. Um, well, here's the thing. Um, one of our listeners who lives in Gansu, he directed me towards a remarkable musical event that happened in China nearly 40 years ago. Um, last time, you and I, own, we were trying to put forward a traditional Irish group whose sound might fit the criteria for just a cultural exchange, cultural exchange you know, yeah. between, the, between we, our we two, said, country, we said between two like, countries. We said, like, uh, the Pogues, Sinead O'Connor, the Cranberries, and the Dubliners. Yep, but... I I don't think either of us proposed the Chieftains. I can't remember that. Um, uh, who who actually did just that back in the 1980s? Yeah, and here's the cool thing: the Chieftains. They were actually the first ever Western musical group 
to play live on the Great Wall of China. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, do you, do you recall how many viewers Westlife had the other weekend in China? It was uh, 25 or 27 million, something like that. Yeah, now that's a lot of people, right? But that pales in comparison to how many viewers the Chieftains play to. Yeah, their live performance was broadcast to 700 million people. Now, for a band of ordinary chaps from the streets of Dublin with banjos and fiddles, that is simply mind-blowing. Yeah, and what's more, an album was released soon afterwards. It was called The Chieftains in China. Yes, complete with the Chinese characters on the front cover. And I cannot believe that I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm surprised. that I'm shocked. I'm shocked. You, you, you're a fountain of knowledge. You like, should, you know that just things. sounds like one of those random things that I know. Mm. And I yeah. didn't. And you didn't, yeah. So I got there first. Oh, yeah. no, I didn't get there you first. Our, there, our, list, got, our listener uh, yeah, did, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I was able to read. it I knew that they, decide, they, they did an album in, in Turkish, I think. The chief, they have the chieftains in Turkey. Okay. They got around, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The I gl- knew that existed. I didn't know the chieftains in China existed. Globetrotters. Globetrotters, yeah. Um... But yeah, how did this happen? Why did the Chieftains come to China and play on the Great Wall? Um, you see, in 1983, um, yeah, so 1983, they, they were the first Irish musicians to visit China. And as Owen said, they were the first ever Western musical group to perform live on the Great Wall. Um, but who are they, for those not in the know? Well, they are an Irish traditional group, and they're huge. Sadly, only two members of the group are alive today. Um, they, are, they are considered cultural ambassadors for Ireland. They are well known in the US, the UK or any other country where the Irish diaspora has settled. Um, they even contributed to an Oscar winning soundtrack and they performed for the Pope. Um, so by the time they arrived in China in 1983, they already had a 20 year career behind them. And how did it all begin, you ask? It actually starts with an ex-girlfriend of Mr. Maloney, who was Chinese. And um, he had an obsession, right? He had an obsession with China. And in 1980, diplomats from the Chinese embassy in London, they attended the Royal Albert Hall for the Sense of Ireland Festival. Now, the chieftains performed at the event and the Chinese diplomats were so impressed that afterwards they invited the band to come to China. The one obstacle with this, though, was there was no Chinese embassy in Ireland. Full diplomatic relations between the two countries were not established until the year after. This was during the period when China was beginning to open itself up to the rest of the world, but foreign groups still required an official invitation to visit China. So... China and Ireland came together because of the music. Yes, it definitely it definitely sped up the process. And the girlfriend sped up the process too, because she understood <laughs> Chinese culture, mm, right? She yeah. understood Chinese culture. She understood how to deal with, with, with Chinese people. And so anyway, the band's founder, Paddy Maloney, he wanted to make this happen. And he really wanted to make this happen. And he went to great lengths to ensure that it did happen. Not only did he want the Chieftains to become the first Western group to play on the Great Wall of China, but he also viewed it as a golden opportunity to reach a new audience and attract mountains and mountains of publicity. However, 
Following up the invite wasn't going to be straightforward. And at first it wasn't even taken seriously. It wasn't until 1982 that he began to make headway. This involved the invitation of his own to the Tianjin Ensemble of Chinese musicians and dancers to perform with the chieftains at the National Concert Hall in Dublin. So he invited the guys from Tianjin over to Dublin. Yeah. So make them, mm-hmm. make the, like give them something. Yeah. You know, put yeah. them on the stage mm-hmm. first. Yes. Right? And it was a breakthrough. It was a breakthrough moment. And Paddy Maloney had played the perfect host and he finally laid the foundations for the chieftain's trip to China. So Paddy Maloney made arrangements with the first Chinese ambassador to Ireland, Gong Pushen, at the new embassy in Dublin, where he also set out his conditions for a tour of China involving the filming and recording of the trip. And the chieftains arrived in Beijing in 1983. It was essentially a guided tour, lots of formalities. They were kept as strict schedules and they stayed in government hotels and attended official banquets every night. The band's fiddler, Sean Keane, he remembered how the police... They were called at one point because the locals weren't acute. They weren't used to hosting people who liked to have the odd tipple. Uh, yeah, a tipple a, being a drink. A drink, yes, a exactly. drink. Exactly, fond of the drink. Yeah. these boys were. Um, yeah, and on the second day of their tour, the chieftains travelled to the town of Badaling, where they performed on one of the sunlit turret, turrets of the Great Wall of China. Um, becoming, as we said at the top, the first, first ever, ever Western to group do. to do that. Yeah. Um, and visitors to the wall, they had no idea who they were. And more and more people began to crowd around out of pure curiosity. Ten minutes in, the performance was abruptly ended. As the crush among the crowd, it had become too dangerous to continue. I love that. The chieftains introducing the mosh pit to the Chinese. It's a crazy story. It is a crazy story. A mosh pit to the chieftains on the top of the Great Wall of China. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, it doesn't end there. Um, did you know that there are over 200 traditional music in- musical instruments in China? That's mental. 200 different types, like erhus and pipas and zithers and gujungs. And you know, I, I heard of about five, maybe you heard six. About, yeah, yeah, there's 200. And so our hero, Paddy Maloney, uh, he was concerned about this because he had sent songs in advance of the band's arrival to local musicians that the chieftains planned to perform with. But he wasn't sure how blending traditional Chinese and Irish music would come across on stage. Probably to do with the different scales and stuff. You know, he doesn't know how folk music is going to match. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't know what to, yeah. to expect, of course. So there was, there's an array of instruments. There's scope and sounds, boundless possibilities. But his fears, they weren't realised. The collaboration succeeded because both sets of musicians used the same style of notation and the amalgamation of instruments actually worked out really well too. The music itself eliminated the language barrier. Music was the common language. And the band even succeeded in getting their guides to loosen up somewhat as well. Remember, we we, we talked about the strict schedule, you know. Uh, This involved the boat ride down the Yangtze River, which quickly turned into a full-on trad session, complete with dancing and plenty of motai. 
hard Chinese liquor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love. I just love a picture of it. You know, the the them boys on a boat getting drunk with the with the with the fiddles and the yelling pipes and everything playing. It would be. I just love a picture <laughs> of it. I wish somebody took a picture of that. Anyway, following the performances in Beijing and Suzhou, the tour ended in Shanghai with a special performance, which was broadcast to 700 million people across China with leading Chinese politicians in attendance. Take that, Westlife. Yeah. But did the chieftains leave a legacy? Well, for starters, the tour cemented diplomatic relations between China and Ireland. For most Chinese people, it was the first glimpse of what Ireland resembled. Uh, They won the hearts and the minds of the nation. Even one of their interpreters, who wept copiously when it was time for the band to say goodbye. The chieftains brought home many of the Chinese instruments that they had come across, probably not 200, but I'm sure five or six. Um, and they even did a series of concerts back home afterwards, which infused the music that they had picked up during their tour of China. Uh, and in 1985, as we said, the band released an album called The Chieftains in China, which was 10 tracks of recordings from their trip. Yeah, and the Chieftains even returned to China in 1997 for a one-night stand in Shanghai. A one-night stand of the musical variety, I Go hope. on, you dirty vulgar. <laughs> 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 what else? Of course it was a... Anyway, all right. They were astonished to see how much the city had changed with the 14 years since they came to China. And that's 25 years ago. Can you imagine what they would think if most of the lads were still around today and they put on another concert here? Oh, sure. I mean, the city, the the whole country for that matter, has changed beyond recognition from what it was then. They definitely need to sit down for a pint out of pure shock, I'd say. Yeah. Um, But the cultural exchange program didn't stop there. In 2004, the Irish Festival was held in China, um, which was opened by the Chieftains in Beijing. Other Irish acts, such as The Frames, played in Beijing too. Alton played there. Um, And it was a part of a wider arts programme that even included a production of, uh, by the Gate Theatre, which is a theatre in Dublin, of Mm -hmm. Samuel Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. Yeah, so this was their production. Yeah, so they, they, they... the Gate Theatre like went to China, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. you know yeah. it's a big deal. Yeah, um, and so it was the Beijing People's Art Theatre and then the Shanghai Dramatic Arts Theatre. And then, as part of the cultural exchange, there was a Chinese Festival of Arts and Culture, which was held in Ireland later the same year. It's great, isn't it? I mean, people coming together through the love of song and poetry and performance. It's crazy, yeah. And it, there's a. There's another story about a, a, a Chinese guy, a friend of Mao, who was um, inspired to write a poem that Mao loved about the the mayor of Cork from 1920. Really? Was, yeah, it's really it's a really weird and obscure story, but it's it's you know it, it kind of there's a there's a big link between Ireland and China, and it goes back a, a good bit. Um, and the whole story of the chieftains coming to China, it just shows how much we all have in common with each other. It doesn't matter what language you speak or the colour of your skin. Did you hear Paddy Maloney once ate spice sausage while riding a velociraptor across the Great Wall of China? <laughs> oh, that's a new one. <laughs> Brand new sentence. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, they found his fossilised remains recently inside of an egg. <laughs> and his first words after hatching from the egg would have been, pint a plane, please. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, what are we talking about? What in the name of God are we talking about? Yeah, there was a big discovery at the back end of December here in China, which we want to get into while it's still relevant, of course. Um, so, yeah, back when we spoke about food culture in China, we likened the durian fruit to a stegosaurus. We were wrong. And it wasn't the stegosaurus we were thinking of, but the ankylosaurus, which, <coughs> like a stegosaurus, it has armoured plates on its back, except they're much smaller. The ankylosaurus... He's one of he's the one with the the tail, the shape like a club, and he, he swings it from side to side when defending itself. Yeah, one whack of that thing, and you're a goner. Oh, it'd be like a like a train hitting you. Um, but yeah, Ankylosaurus it was very reptile like, and its name means fused lizard in Greek. Now, beside that point, many dinosaurs were also avian like. And what I find fascinating is that today's common birds share many of the same characteristics and body composition as dinosaurs. Uh, Debate has raged amongst paleontologists for three centuries over whether or not birds actually did evolve from dinosaurs. Uh, And a very significant recent find in China further reinforces the theory that they did. It wasn't so much found as it was forgotten about and then resurrected. We're referring here to a fossilised egg that was stored away for years and only unearthed once more because the building in which it was housed was undergoing renovations and all the stored specimens had to be moved. Yeah, this egg, this was first discovered in 2000 um, and it was acquired by a group of researchers only to be kind of finally unboxed in 2010, isn't that right? Yeah, they're called the Yingliang Group which is a company that mines stones. They kept it all in the Yinlang Stone Natural History Museum and decided recently to crack it open. And what did they find? Only a perfectly preserved dinosaur embryo that they christened Baby Yinlang. Ah, they missed a trick not calling it Baby Maloney. (laughs) A terrible missed opportunity. But yeah, many scientists in the field have now discovered the discovery as one of the best in its kind, but why is it important? It's important due to the long-held belief that birds have dinosaur ancestry or evolved from at least some species of dinosaur. Uh, And to explain this, let's first talk about hips. Lizard hips and bird hips. Most dinosaurs had either one of two types of hip structures, lizard-hipped or bird-hipped. And our friend the Ankylosaurus who looks like a durian, probably smelt like one too. He was remarkably bird-hipped, despite the meaning of its name. Um, This is a hypothesis that has changed over time. Many theropods, such as the Tyrannosaurus rex, were once considered lizard-hipped, but now they've been identified, (coughs) at least by some, as bird-hipped. The hypothesis is not so cut cut and dry. Um, For instance, lizard-hipped dinosaurs, such as the Velociraptor, are now believed to have had feathers on various parts of their bodies. But the important thing to note is that in many cases, birds are a central part of the picture. Now, the embryo that was found in China belongs to a species of toothless-beaked theropod called an oviraptor. 
uh, it kind of looked like a big chicken, right? And significantly, the embryo is extremely reminiscent of the posture that birds take in the egg, uh, a curled position known as tucking. Uh, and this is a behavior seen in birds shortly before they hatch. Aren't chickens essentially theropods? Yes, uh, and some dinosaurs were essentially giant turkeys. Do you remember that reference being made in Jurassic Park? With the annoying kid at the dig site? The very one, yeah. Um, so this is the whole bird theory being put forward in the film and, and not forgetting the book. It was adapted from Jurassic Park. Um, so at the dig site, we are introduced to paleontologist Dr. Alan Grant, played by Sam Neill. Met him in Dublin. Oh, really? Um, nice guy. Nice guy. Uh, he argues the case that birds evolved from dinosaurs. And he does this by explaining how the structural anatomy of a raptor is very similar to those of modern birds. Of course, then this, this bratty young kid comes along and he mocks the, the whole theory that the, 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 and the velociraptor specimen as a, being a six-foot turkey. Uh, but he's not entirely wrong. Um, we know that many species of dinosaur had feathers. The velociraptor more feathered than most. Except that the chap didn't factor in that this turkey was one clever predator who liked to hunt for sport. He was one mean turkey, all right, yeah. Yeah, and of course, Jurassic Park knew this, and this scene was their way around not having to present their dinosaurs on screen running around like feathered farm animals, because that's not really terrifying. It's kind of comical is what it is. Yeah, they're right. Now, Steven Spielberg and all his gang, they knew this. Um, Feckless bloodthirsty lizards are always going to look cooler and be scarier than a big rooster with a comb on the top of its head the comb i speak of here being the red fan thing yeah at the top of the head yeah and that that's very true of course and and i mean with all this all these feathers with all this fur like it's a chicken it's it's a chicken yeah it's essentially a chicken yeah like it's a it's dinosaurs were chickens without beaks Mm -hmm. yeah um and they had very razor sharp teeth. Razor sharp teeth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, of course, like these are hungry dinosaurs. They're beating around the jungle. You know, yeah. they don't have all these these these. What would you call them? The, the, these frocks. These frocks of feathers, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, they're not going out for a night on the tiles at the Moulin Rouge. Yeah. So I can understand why the, the Jurassic Park crew d- depicted the dinosaurs as they did. Can you imagine dinosaurs doing the can can? <laughs> probably cool yeah, yeah little tyrannosaurus i'm trying to picture it now yeah <laughs> paddy maloney sitting on the back of one of them. <laughs> playing the alien pipes yeah so anyway we're going to talk more about the significance of the find um we're talking to you now about Ganzhou and jiangxi province and that's in southern china the embryo has been estimated at least 66 million years old and one researcher a certain dr ma he described the discovery as the best dinosaur embryo ever found in history. And he went on to say how it was a great indicator of how the behavior of modern birds first evolved and originated amongst their dinosaur ancestors. No doubt we're all familiar with Charles Darwin's The Origin of the Species, which was a landmark study on the theory of evolution, first published in 1859. Now, there was a fella by the name of Thomas Henry Huxley, uh, he was also known as Darwin's bulldog because of his staunch advocacy of Darwin's theory. A very important man as well. Mm, very, yeah. The first man to mention human evolution. 
Right. Okay. That's that was that's who he was. So a, a year after the or four years after the origin of the species, uh, Thomas Henry Huxler first proposed human evolution and humans being a part of the ape family. And he has the diagram. He drew that diagram of um, gibbons to man. Yeah. You know, w- w- along the stages of orangutan, chimpanzee, gorilla, and then man. That's Huxley. Yeah. So, I mean, if you want to accelerate this theory, you've got two guys living at the same time to do it for you. Yeah, exactly. And Huxley was, uh, he was both an anthropologist and a biologist, and he was desperate to prove the theory. Uh, to do so, he needed fossil evidence, a missing link that proved how animals transitioned from one species to another. And luckily for him, just two years later in Bavaria, a near-perfect fossil of Archaeopteryx was yielded from Jurassic-aged limestone deposits. Its skeleton showed how it was a carnivorous dinosaur, but it was its feathered impressions that gave Huxley the evidence that he sought. It was a massive coup, a game-changer in fact, and it turned heads. However, it wasn't enough to settle the argument. The argument was just beginning. One of the main issues was the lack of a human, lack of a wishbone, which it acts like a kind of a spring, a wishbone to kind of, to assist the wings to turn and assist flight. Mm. It sits between the two collarbones. Yeah. Um, so that's that part of the story. Uh, next came an American paleontologist in the 20th century called John Ostrom who resurrected Huxley's theory through the skeletons of Deinonychus, a theropod discovered in Montana, in America. Ostrom was able to show that Deinonychus did actually have a wishbone uh, and that it had been previously mistaken as ventral ribs. What's more, he was able to show that the fusion of the two collarbones uh, via the wishbone had clearly occurred in theropods long before the evolution of flight capability. So... Let's take you back to China now. It's the 1990s, and this time we're going to Liaoning province in the north of the country. And it's here we begin to see the emergence of the final piece of evidence needed, feathers. This came in the form, and this is a tough one to pronounce. I'll try my best. I should get it. Go for Sin- it. Oh, you ready? Yep. Sinosauropteryx. Oh, that's very good. Isn't that? That is excellent. That is excellent, yeah. Chinese lizard that flies. Mm. That's it. Chinese flying lizard. That's okay. what it is. Sinosauropteryx. Right. This, desert, this dinosaur had no wings, but it was covered in feathers. And since that discovery in 1996, an array of small feathered dinosaurs have been unearthed from the same province, ranging from meat-eating theropods to fully feathered winged birds. Long considered to be the first bird-like dinosaur, Huxley's Archaeopteryx lost that honour to Xiao Tinja, uh, which was also discovered in Liaoning province, this time in 2011. Uh, and it is believed to be at least 5 million years older than Archaeopteryx, than the Archaeopteryx fossil. Xiao uh, Tinja was not only feathered, but it had wings capable of gliding Probably an intermediate step towards fully powered flight. Yeah, the predecessors of the Wright brothers. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, there was another guy too. All right, another dinosaur. Found in Hebei province in 2015, which is next to Liaoning. Uh, this one was called Ichi. 
which was a small specimen weighing around 380 grams. And, but this one had bat-like wings uh, and he used them to glide. And so there was a lot of aerial experimentation going on. But why? Why the desire to fly? Did these dinosaurs fancy a sun get away in the canaries? Pardon the pun. <laughs> no. It, oh, it was all to do with evolution and survival as Charles Darwin had wrote about. Small theropods had already taken to the trees. They were probably there to avoid the larger predators below. They began to form claws, which were great for grabbing prey and for climbing. And the next step for them in the evolutionary chain was to glide from tree to tree, like flying lizards do today. And before, finally, they evolved true aeronautical ability. Yeah, they were at an advantage because they were lightweight. And the ability to rotate their shoulder sockets in a, in a grasping fashion allowed for the first strokes of powered flight. And their lungs also had modified over time to the extent that they possessed the same breathing system that is characteristic of modern birds. The final piece in the jigsaw required for powered flight were feathers. And all these features, the lightweight bone structure, the rotating shoulder sockets, the wishbone, the breathing system, and the feathers, of course, developed in theropods long before they took to the air. And there is loads more science to the theory and plenty of arguments for and against. But we're talking about creatures that existed millions and millions of years ago. Everything is open to interpretation. We could go on talking about this all day. But for argument's sake, we'll leave it there for now. Yes, and I hope we made it as easy as possible for you guys listening to understand. We actually found out from a guy, um, a guy we know at the comedy club, that there's a natural history museum here in Chongqing with an enormous dinosaur exhibit. And we're thinking of going over there for a look during the holiday. Yes, and they have some kind of paleontology department as well. So... Who knows, we might even get a chance to chat to a few experts. Yeah, well, the guy we know, his name is Luke. He told us that paleontology is a dying art in China, and I'd like to find out why that's the case. Yeah, hello, Luke. Yeah, hello, Luke. Um, and besides, it's something to do. Uh, we might even get to see a chieftain in an egg. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. We might do. Um, so what's in store over the next few months on this podcast? Lots and lots of exciting entries. Yeah, we're going to talk some more about the comedy scene in China. We're going to talk about punk rock in Wuhan. We're going to talk about elephants, crocodiles and Bruce Lee. Yeah, uh, and much, much more. And much more. Um, there's plenty there to get to whet your appetite. Uh, and if you haven't yet listened to our latest episodes, now is the time to catch up. Because this train has left the platform and it's picking up speed. Yeah, incidentally, please... Go and listen to our Monkey Britpop episode if you haven't. Um, we see the analytics and we know we know that not enough of you listen to it. That's the that's the best one. Like that's the best one we've done. Yeah, like it's arguably the best one we've done. Yeah, it's arguably the best. Like we know it's an hour long, but if you get a chance, it's worth investing your time because it's a wonderful take on on a cool story. Yeah. And that is episode six. It's episode six, yeah. It's episode six. Um, but yeah, like we, we pride ourselves in our work. And now that we have a bit of a following, we want to make sure that we give you the best possible product. 
Yeah, number 87 in Turkey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. Right. And if we're not satisfied with something, we'll, we'll scrap it. Um, yeah, we will. Um, and if you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We've recently had new listeners from the likes of Italy, Poland, the Netherlands, Nigeria, and the United Arab Emirates, to name but a few. Uh, and like, that's something that really motivates us. What sort of countries are you left waiting for? What, what, what countries do you want to see next? I, I really want to see somewhere like Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah, like. I was going to say exactly that. I want to see like those islands start lighting up. Yeah. Like the St. Vincent and the Grenadines and yeah. stuff like that. It's, I mean... It's 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 obscure because you know why would someone in one of those Caribbean islands be listening to a podcast about China? You know that's yeah. why I want to see it. Yeah, I want to see it light up. I want to see know? it. I just want to see it light up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so if you're on Twitter, give us a like. Uh, you can find us at at the China Podcast. If you're on Spotify, give us a follow. If you're on YouTube, like and subscribe. Yeah, uh, and I'm glad we put the podcast on Stitcher, by the way, because. You know, we've had a lot of listens up there, which is nice to see, of course. Um, anyway, enough publicity for one day. It's feeding time. And the velociraptors are famished. And that's a wrap. Take care. Toodles. <laughs> Thank you.